welcome to Level with Emily Reese. This interview came as a bit of a surprise because I can say with a fair amount of certainty that I never expected to be uh, talking about a popular game that had a score written and recorded by a professional early music ensemble. But here we are, and I'm really grateful for that. The music you're hearing right now is performed and was written by Alchemy Early Music Ensemble. Alchemy being a New York City-based early music ensemble that wrote and performed the soundtrack for Pentiment. Pentiment is a 2D narrative adventure RPG. It's a murder mystery set in the early part of the 16th century. And the idea for such a historically accurate game set in the Middle Ages came from game designer and director Josh Sawyer, who's from Obsidian. I spoke with two founders of Alchemy Early Music Ensemble, who are also performers, Sean Ricketts and Tracy Cowart. Both of them are multi-instrumentalists and are singers. Hot tip... If you like Alchemy's music and this style of music, you can get a free EP from them just by uh, joining their mailing list. Super easy. You get four fantastic live tracks they recorded. Just hop on over to their website. It's Alchemy, but spelled differently. It's A-L-K-E-M-I-E, alchemy.org. Sign up for their mailing list. You get a free EP. That's awesome. Join us on Discord. That link is down in the show notes. Follow us on YouTube. This conversation is over there as well. So you can find us on our YouTube channel. Subscribe if you don't mind. That'd be great. And uh, get notifications so you don't miss our videos. And if you can support us financially on Patreon, that would be fabulous. That's patreon.org slash level. All right. I loved learning more about this music and how Alchemy created it. Here are Sean and Tracy. Sean Ricketts. It's so weird that I'm not introducing Tracy immediately because <laughs> this is Tracy Cowart. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we both live in Brooklyn. We both have doctorates in historical performance practice from Case Western Reserve University. And we are lucky to have a career where we get to do almost everything together. We're best friends. We love making music together administrating together, <laughs> writing grants, listening to edits, teaching students, you name it, we'll try to find a way to do it as a duo. So we're co-managing directors of the Alchemy uh, Medieval Ensemble. And we, in that uh, capacity, got asked to make music for Pentiment. Wow. How did that happen? Who did you know? Or how do you know what I mean? Like, how did this happen? It all goes back to Minnesota. Oh, no it's kidding. True, Yay. actually. <laughs> Yay, Minnesota. <laughs> so we have, um, so I'm Tracy Coward, as Sean said. And uh, yeah, we're, we, we co-manage things together, which is, you know, I think more and more people are understanding it's easy to create hierarchies because at some point it's like, well, who's doing the thing? 
but also it is nice to kind of lead into partnerships too, which is something that we do as an ensemble. You know, we all have our strengths and weaknesses, but um, you know, it's nice when you when you have a, a partner who you who you trust and you know that you both kind of have your strengths, but one person can, you know, say someone has COVID, somebody else can kind of rise to the occasion and then we're kind of like waves, you know? And um yeah. it's it's always interesting we keep getting kind of asked to differentiate more and more. And I think our world wants to put us into boxes. Sure. For reasons I love this game so much and the music we made for it, because it kind of doesn't fit neatly into a lot of boxes, which is, which is fun. But, um, but back to your question, uh, we have a beloved colleague who is also um, uh, on our board and she kept, she kept asking me, she said, you play the hurdy gurdy, right? And I said, well, the hurdy gurdy kind of plays me, you know, it's, <laughs> It's a, it's a finicky little monster, but um, she said, you know, I have this friend who I, I've done some work with and I, I think there might be an interesting opportunity for the hurdy-gurdy. And um, this friend turned out to be Josh Sawyer, who's the director of Pentiment and also of a lot of other games, which people love. And uh, he finally got in touch with, I think with Sean, is that right? Yeah, he contacted us through our website and that goes, those communications go to me. Okay. Uh, and he said, you know, I'm a friend of Carrie's. Uh, they went to Lawrence University together. Just, oh, okay. it's, a, it's an upper Midwest connection. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so Carrie, <laughs> uh, I think Tracy didn't explicitly say that Carrie went to Lawrence. I think she grew up in Kentucky, but it's had been living for many years in Minnesota. And she's okay. an amazing musician, Carrie Henneman Shaw. Um, She's yeah. a new music. Yeah, she's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. She's awesome. Yeah. And so we <laughs> met her in Cleveland. And then it was exciting because whenever I would go home to see my family in Minneapolis, I would meet Carrie for drinks. Yeah. Um, okay. Which was, okay. Uh, you know, I love seeing my family, but it's also nice to have friends to see when of you're, yes. when you're, when you're home. Um, so she, uh, had told Josh to, to contact us and then immediately followed back up to say, you know, you might have gotten kind of a weird email, but I can, I can confirm this person is legit. Like you need to call him back right away. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so I did. And it was so wonderful because Tracy and I, you know, we, we're, we're musicians and we're going to a lot of musical things, but we're also consuming other types of media all the time. Sure. And, seeing there are so many TV shows and movies and other properties that are kind of set in earlier periods. And as specialists in those periods, we really appreciate seeing, you know, the art and the costuming and sometimes are really sad to see that in a show where you'll read descriptions of them hand beating every bead on their beautiful dress. And then you hear music that is, totally not appropriate to the country <laughs> and century right just wildly anachronistic in a way that you know i'm down for that as an artistic choice but yeah. sometimes you think was this a choice or was it just kind of an accident that happened and nobody really noticed you know right uh, you're like are they not aware that they could there are people who do this yeah. and have those <laughs> instruments right. but of course as just your friendly freelance brooklyn medieval ensemble we don't know those people so right. <laughs> So when Josh contacted me, he told me that essentially, and I'm not a video game person, my my partner is. Uh, okay. And so he, uh, when I 
told him about it. He ended up finding out about it because he is also on our board. And so our everybody, we signed an NDA. And so we couldn't talk about it right. for a long time. But right. the I'm people sure. affiliated with our ensemble knew what we were working on. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was so excited. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Josh told me that it had been his dream. He was a history major. I think he actually started as a voice major and then became a history major at Lawrence University. Oh, wow. And that it had been his dream ever since he started working in the video game industry, which is what he'd done since graduating, yeah. to make a historically informed video game. Wow. And so Amazing. it was really a passion project for him. And of course, sure. I told him that that was also our deepest dream. <laughs> <laughs> So it was it was really, really fun. Um, wow. And and pretty overwhelming because we are a nonprofit uh, arts ensemble. We had did not have any commercial recording experience as a group before okay. we did this. One of our members uh, had made actually music for another game. I think Civilization, Civilization. Six. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and they uh, so they had experience with that. And actually in the mm-hmm. pandemic, um, has been doing more and more video game composing and recording. Uh, okay. But the rest of us had never done commercial recording work and had actually, we had not yet made a recording of any kind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I noticed so, that because I tried to find more, you know what I mean? But, and there's some recordings on on YouTube, which is fun. Uh, but but yeah, I, I'm sure there'll be more. You know. Yeah, in the last yeah. year, we did make we have two recordings that were kind of we've we've gotten in the studio. We're in various stages of editing. Uh, one of them oh, is closer cool. than the other. So in the next year, we oh, should good. release two more things. Oh, cool. Uh, we also, you know, during the pandemic, recorded a whole bunch of concert videos and are planning to kind of to start releasing videos from that. So there will be nice. we have kind of this like, you know, the past three years, it's like we've been laying this large egg yes <laughs> you know yeah. and now <laughs> sean and i watched gremlins recently and i feel like pentiment <laughs> is one of the gremlins that's emerged and there's some others that are kind of gestating but um mm-hmm. but the you know the game was also kind of like sean said we started with with very little recording experience and other than just being captured and the the demo track we sent over to kind of be like, hey, is this a good fit? Is this what, what you're looking for? Yeah. We recorded all together in a room before a concert we were about to do. And and that was how we made that. And that's how we typically had recorded in the past. Okay. Then we sent that over. And then, you know, March 22, 2020 happened. And we were like, well, this is kind of all we've got going on right now. We really want to do it. Mm-hmm. So So we, you know, we went through the whole path of, figuring out how to do multi-tracking separately. And by the end of it, we were working with an engineer and the dream we discovered was to multi-track things, but to have us all in the studio together, because we, a a lot of it is of course scored and, and played to a click track, but, Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of it is also improvised in the moment and then improvisations layered on top of each other. And if we're all there together, then we could immediately fix things or add things. Um, sure. We started and to have sit, ideas but, in the moment instead yeah. of it. Mm-hmm. It was just this logistical challenge because it was coordinating with people's schedules because everybody was also recording themselves and because we all live in different places. Yeah. And so it, then it would be this hard thing where if we got through everybody's but then decided 
somebody needed to re-record then was like well when is that person available like yeah. we're trying to get this done yeah um and it's just more fun our our compositional process and our arrangement process is very collaborative um that's how we always work we we try to make some decisions ahead of time but we're really inspired by each other's ideas in the moment and so being able to be in the same place, obviously, is ideal. And the eye contact, right? You know, being able to look at each other while you're making music is huge. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Mm. And just, you know, to hear what someone's doing and respond to it. thing that when we've been talking to Josh about this, he, we've mentioned that, or he mentioned that this was a very different process than he usually goes through for scoring games. So we were working in conjunction with the team. He said, you know, normally the whole thing will be, the whole game will be worked out and then you'll give it to a composer and, and they'll start composing everything basically in, in scored MIDI kind of MIDI files. And you'll mm -hmm. work back and forth with those and then eventually like in the end they either finalize everything with 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 the midi or you know if it's a big budget thing you hire an orchestra who just plays everything the yeah. end but yeah. with with us you know we were getting um narrative prompts you know josh would say this is what's this is the mood i'm looking for this is what's happening so we kind of had a sense of the the general arc of the game or like moments within it uh and then you'd say you know can you you know, give me something. And at first we were creating like final finished tracks. And then this was part of our learning process, you know, then he, he would put it with the gameplay and say, well, that's not quite getting what I'm, you know, what I want mm -hmm. and say, oh, okay. So, so, so then we started sending, you know, like David would play a, a melody on the VL or I'd send a track that was, you know, voices singing what we thought might, might be happening, but we knew we were going to do with instruments. So we kind of working out drafts that way. Mm -hmm. But, um, but yeah, but it was a very collaborative back and forth process sure. where where we were we were doing a lot kind of in in real time as the game developed. So the other interesting thing about this is, you know, when we started, we had kind of one set of instruments. And Sean, you made a you made a list, right? Like how many I, more instruments did we have at the end? I did make I did make a list. It because as medieval musicians, part of the joy for us is that there's no instrumentation indicated basically until, I mean, even when you're looking at the 16th century, there's kind of still, and there was an assumption that like you could play this music on different combinations of instruments, different families of instruments, uh, mm -hmm. voices. So you're really only limited by how many instruments do you want to buy <laughs> and how many <laughs> instruments do you want to practice? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. we're pretty, uh, uh, Tracy's partner is an amazing multi-instrumental in, multi-instrumentalist and he said he calls it instrument acquisition syndrome I, IAS <laughs> and we've got a really bad case of IAS mm -hmm. so throughout this uh yeah we we bought many new instruments uh sure. when we made the first demo track 
And we actually added one more core member to the ensemble (laughs) during the pandemic. (laughs) Um, So we added one new member. We also broadened our kind of reach to include other people that we thought would be helpful. Um, But that one new member, one of the first things he did at the beginning of COVID was that he learned how to play the medieval bagpipes. So so then we had bagpipes for a possibility. Uh, And I bought a six string lyre. So then that was a possibility. I borrowed a sham from this amazing early music ensemble from Pifaro, who I played with a few times. So we had friends like ferrying this sham back and forth between Philadelphia and New York so that I could (laughs) record. (laughs) Because in Act 2, when things start getting more martial, I was like, we need to have sham for this. Yes, yes. Um, and, And the same... And Sean yes. being a double reed, right? Yes, double reed like the kind loud of. outdoor double reed instrument. Big reeds, right? Pretty big. Yeah, compared to like an oboe. Much bigger than an oboe. Kind of a bassoon. It's a more of a style of reed that looks more similar to a bassoon reed than to an oboe reed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And yeah, so we just kept adding more different different (laughs) things as as we purchased those instruments. For me, I had just ordered before the pandemic an F bass recorder that I actually envisioned using for consort playing with other people mm-hmm. and I thought that I would never play it because my hands are pretty small and it's a okay. pretty big instrument but yeah. actually the first week that I had it I used it to record my line in <laughs> memory in in a uh, city of reason <laughs> part of the game is like that's it it's the first time i'd ever played that instrument and it's on the recording yeah um so so that was really exciting for us as we we got to continue to explore new ideas um and yeah in the third act when we those scenes in the mithraeum um that are kind of evoking early greek music Mm -hmm. One of our members, Niccolo, was hired the previous year to score a theatrical production of the Iliad. And so they had researched that kind of music and was totally ready to write us some ancient Greek music. (laughs) (laughs) That track, the Mithrium, is crazy. That track is absolutely crazy because there's like a, what's the plucked instrument in there with the weird tuning? Talk about that. So the plucked instrument, it's a cantile. It's kind of a plucked... Is it, Tracy, we didn't see it. It's it's like a hammered dulcimer style. It's like a hammered dulcimer oh, okay. style oh, Okay, yeah. so it's not plucked, it's hammered. And, and, and it was, but Nicola, was Nicola plucking it? Do we know? 
I don't know if they were because it was this was one thing that we did not we multi-tracked it not in the same place. Okay, <laughs> okay, right. interesting. But then the the wire is in there. Yeah, but too, then the six plucked. string wire yeah. is plucked, and yeah. that those things can be tuned in any way. Sure. And then the the wind instruments. I was playing Dusen and recorder, and Dusen is actually the pitches. It, that's kind of the soft early double read. It's like okay. the soft sister of the sham. Okay. Dusen means sweet, and so that was kind of okay. the indoor double read <laughs> instrument of the <laughs> medieval and Renaissance, and. There's so much pitch, pitch flexibility that I was able to actually match the pitch of the the cantilets. We did that track first, and then okay. they're playing. All, the cantilet has a lot of microtonality tuned in the instrument. Yeah, and then I just was able to listen to match it, and I actually could use the same fingerings to play many of those notes because oh, okay. there's so many notes possible within the wow. Um <laughs> And then that track. This was in Act 3. By the time we got to Act 3, we were really having a good time. But if you also hear, there's like a watery sound. That was us recording us trying to pour water slowly. And then we slowed it down in post-production. Nice. To try to get, because we were thinking about the sounds of ruins and things you might hear. And oh, the and there are various chimes that we integrated. Yes. we had a we had a really fun time making that track. <laughs> So makes that track sound so different. I was just seeing if I could find it, but what Niccolo, what their research was mostly in when they were thinking about Greek music was Greek music theory, because yeah. we don't we don't have ancient Greek music, right? And, right. And so, so they were looking into the the theoretical constructs and the the way that the tuning system might have worked. And so, so for that, we the tuning system they came up with involved stacking fifths but then also coming up with these neutral thirds in certain places and sure. the, the the neutral third you know it's not a major third it's not a minor third and the the combination with the fists it, it, it gives it the sense where you just feel like you're in a different world yeah and yeah and that was and like sean said she had the flexibility to enter that world on her double on her double reed instrument There's some really nice duets uh, through the album, too. There's like um, a couple of string instruments play a duet in like Andreas's Return, which, yeah. and, and I just, let's talk about that one before I go on to the next duet. But but yeah. that one, um, that one I like because it's a really nice example of the, the kind of improvisation and ornamentation, I think, that you were alluding to before. So can you talk a little bit about that track and who's playing and what they're playing? Mm-hmm. Sean, I'll start. Yeah. Why don't, and you jump in? <laughs> I feel like I 
I'm not a string player, so and neither is Tracy. So we yeah. were not involved, but I was there operating okay. the recording technology <laughs> when. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that that was. Uh, we're so lucky to work with these two VL players, Nicholas Seligman and David McCormick, and they play the VL as an early fiddle. Um, there's a ton of flexibility in terms of how many strings it might have. You can play it up mm. on the shoulder like a violin or between the legs, more like a like a cello, a very small cello. You can tune your strings to anything you want. And we have historical records that VL players, there were different tunings that we have recorded that people used. And we mm. know that they made those choices based on, it was, uh, they what drones they wanted so they could self-accompany and also sure. you know what key their their people were playing in but our VL players have a really beautifully flexible style that's influenced by uh david i think had early training as kind of a jazz violinist and nicolo oh, wow. is a really accomplished bluegrass and old time player and they bring those traditions to this also just have created as a duo such a great rapport even so much that in Andres's farewell and return which was not recorded at the same time Nicolo oh, did wow. the, the top line no Nicolo did the bottom line first and then David just listened to it once and then <laughs> and he was like I got and this. then sat there and wow. he was like oh yeah I got this and then I press play and I think I think he might have done it in one take, wow. his top part. And it was just because they've worked together for so many years, we started sure. playing together in 2013, that they're kind of perfectly attuned to each other yeah. and what they might do. Because, yeah, that that line, it's um, it's kind of an improvisatory version of polyphony that's written out, but it's totally out of time. Of course, like it wasn't performed to a click. Yeah. And and there are a lot of a lot of liberties taken if you're looking at the the printed music. And so David, I think, was really playing by ear with Niccolo and wow. kind of perfectly created this mournful, mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. mournful duet. Um, yeah. 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 I, uh, yes, David and Niccolo, we <laughs> awesome. couldn't do anything without them. You know? <laughs> at this point, we can't have a concert that doesn't have them featured in, in the VL duet moment. We're just like, oh. the people demand. <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, we we joke, and it's something really special that we've talked about the collaborative nature of our ensemble. We don't mm -hmm. have a musical leader. We kind of take turns sure. programming and working together. Um, 
but in the room, not one person is in charge. Um, sometimes we'll assign people to, if you're a singer and you're singing a solo, you'll kind of lead the rehearsal for that piece because the assumption is you've probably thought about it more than anybody else. <laughs> um, but another big part of our ethos that I think also came through on the album is that we really want to feature everybody. Like everybody has different strengths. And so in any concert and, and in the album, we want the VLs to be featured as soloists and as a duet. We want to have some music where the three, where singers can sing alone without instruments because that's such a special sound. And we yeah. want to feature all of the singers as soloists uh, mm -hmm. because we think that everybody has something so special to offer. Um, we we don't have a like front front man or front person and like backup yeah. vibe. We could or or rather we do, but it changes from piece to piece. Yeah, <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, and the other duet that really stood out to me was this uh, one where I, maybe it's both of you singing. I don't know. Uh, uh, Sister Amelie's second vision. Oh, so that is actually Elena, our third our third singer. Okay. Um, oh, funny. We ended up. Uh, <laughs> In the beginning, we assigned her to sing um, Sister Amelie's first vision, uh, okay. <laughs> which is yeah. based on the Hildegard von Bingen chant, Quia, Quia Ergo Femina, oh, which cool. is one of the, Josh requested two specific pieces in this entire thing. Okay. Everything else he left up to us. Okay. And that chant, the Quia Ergo, and then the, the Brother Rudiger's uh, chant towards the end the petrus lead they were the two ones he was like i really oh, okay. want those on there yeah oh, okay yeah. Cool. cool so we had assigned that to elena and that was one of our favorite parts of working on act one was what we came up with for that piece and i have to say i was actually not making any of the sounds in that but i was like but it's my favorite track that we made good job everybody <laughs> are, you, Emily, are you talking about the one where it's just one voice or no i think two voices together two. in so the yeah. two voices together, two together are yeah. elena multi-shaft with herself. <laughs> I guess it does sound like one person in hindsight, yeah. Yeah, and, and in a way that because we had so decided that she was the voice of that vision, we wanted to keep to keep that. Sure. And that piece was, I, I think, really demonstrative of our kind of collaborative effort because we knew we wanted it to be based on the same music as the chant, but we wanted it to sound different. Mm. And so we decided we wanted to rhythmicize it, which is something that we're often thinking about as an option for music because the music of Hildegard von Bingen is unrhythmicized nooms. Sure. Um, and in we work with the music of Hildegard all the time. We really love it. And mm -hmm. we often think about rhythmicizing it based on like kind of one of the early uh, rhythmic strategies, the medieval rhythmic modes, which is our essentially combinations of long and short notes. Okay. So we wanted to apply that rhythm. And then we have a hot debate over whether or not we like as an ensemble, the practice of just shadowing, harmonizing in fourths and fifths, what we call forbidon. Okay. Um, yeah. I usually take an <laughs> historically anti. have taken an anti-Foberdone stance. <laughs> Although as I've I've taught more and more classes in kind of early compositional processes. And so as I've worked with on it with my students more and more, I am kind of getting used to it. But 
Ben, so I, I really wanted to be rhythmicized and I worked on that. And then Ben really wanted to try writing in a forbidone. So he did that and I kind of edited it. And then I knew that I wanted to have kind of a Dusen accompanimental line, which often I'll just improvise a line. Yeah. But then Niccolo saw this and thought, no, I I really want to write out a line. I really have a good idea for a, an accomp- accompanimental line. So they mm-hmm. wrote that line. Oh, and cool. so we all kind of worked on it. And then there was improvised sound effects that we layered on, on top of that. Yeah, the fourths, you know, hearing the parallel fourths, you know, I mean, that's such a, I mean, it yanks you pre-1600 or so, right? I mean, it's just like, and then, and then that was such a huge no-no for so many hundreds of years, like 400 years or something. It was like, don't do that. And um, it's just one of those things to me that makes it sound old, right? You know, when we think about things to, to that make music sound old. That's... Right. What makes it sound a certain way. Yeah. 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 And that's something that we thought about a lot because as people, you know, I sometimes still just describe myself as a medieval lady. And I do <laughs> do music, <laughs> which I didn't necessarily anticipate happening to me as a career, but I'm really happy to, about it. Mm-hmm. I do do. I do also play Baroque instruments and I also okay. sing, you know, music of the 19th and 20th centuries. And we do a lot of new music, too. But in terms of like we're so often in the sound world of the medieval period that to us certain things sound very normal and right. it's interesting in our back and forth with Josh to have conversations to realize that certain things that we always assumed or had taken for granted weren't didn't necessarily read the same way to Josh and the team at Obsidian and so navigating okay. that was kind of fascinating sure um yeah and i feel like now we thought about it more and we're like we could name like three things tracy it was that adding the triangle makes things sound festive (laughs) (laughs) um we often nicolo has kind of a a very hype triangle uh technique that they've created and that we often use for us to just create energy but like a neutral energy and we tried to have triangle indicate heightened energy in a dangerous way and that did not work (laughs) (laughs) so the triangle is not a good instrument for danger neither is the soprano recorder unfortunately because that's also another thing that i my assumption is like oh yeah you want it to sound kind of level 10 you got to add the high recorder apparently (laughs) No, that's <laughs> not true. So we learned that like we needed to go towards essentially low sounds read as ominous and dangerous. Mm-hmm. High sounds or very, very, very high, but not the recorder. Unfortunately, the <laughs> recorder does not have a dangerous setting. Which is really not sad unless for it's me. played by a second grader, then. We- <laughs> you know? um, 
And then, and then also that we, we really wanted because the 16th century was really the age of polyphony. And so we wanted to work with as much polyphony as we could. And we didn't, um, kind of clear that broad concept with Josh and around (laughs) about act two, you know, he, cause he had made it really clear. He was interested in using these early instruments and historical practices and, and working as much as possible with historical music and but basically we had a conversation where he was like you it doesn't have to be polyphony and you can go earlier than the 16th century yeah. but and you can go to other countries right yeah. <laughs> but not um, later he said you know he said you know the yeah. acts are happening at like 15 i forget 15 blah 1543 and something else and he was like so you can go we can go earlier with the assumption that music continued to circulate yeah but but let's not you know let's not no leading tones into- yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And of course, you know, we did compose some music as well. And so yeah. that music is, of course, quote unquote, later. But well, um, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Right. But you know, we, we, when we would compose polyphony, or when we would do things with we'd take monophony and, and reimagine it or rewrite it. Mm-hmm. Um, we were kind of still in that the language, you know, that the, the modal and harmonic language of, of the medieval and Renaissance period. Yep. Uh, or we would kind of really fracture it. There's, there's not, we don't use effects that often on the recording, mm-hmm. but they're kind of sprinkled throughout. And, and at some points when it was like, we need to have something that is kind of beyond the, the, the constructs of reality yeah. um, in like the, the city of madness or something. That's when yeah. we, we would do things like, you know, pitch the bagpipes down by, by an octave or I, I can't remember exactly what it on that Sean but but yeah when in City adding... of Madness we put the low drone through a, an effects pedal actually which kind of gave it and the high very high droning uh vial also we put a little bit of an effect through that as well um which was really fun to get to do um yeah but it's still using those early instruments as as the basis for mm-hmm. what we did with those materials So what instrument did both of you start off on? Tracy, how did you get your musical start? Well, my musical start, what, the instrument I wanted to play yeah. when I was really young was the harp. I saw oh, Mickey's God. Jack and the Beanstalk and there was that <laughs> harp playing itself. And I was like, I want to play it so bad. It's so beautiful. Yeah. And living in the middle of nowhere you know hours and hours from anything in colorado yeah yeah. my parents said you know we support you wanting to learn how to play music but a harp (laughs) is simply not practical (laughs) so that for so so many reasons for so many reasons so they got me a small upright piano and that is oh uh, the the main instrument i learned on so i i think um i think as a you know music this way yes and then i've you know i've I've sung which is interesting when we talk to nicolo they think of they really understand music on on a grid and and it's just a really kind of a different mindset but um 
but so I started on the piano and I also, I loved singing. So, you know, I always sang and, um, and then I went and I got a business degree because people thought that would be a good idea. And, uh, yep. I graduated and was like, but this is really not what I want to be doing. I want to be, you know, want to be making music. And so I went yeah. back and got many other degrees in, in music, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, eventually we founded this medieval ensemble and part of the joy of it is that we do get to explore and play other instruments together. So it was yeah. maybe three or four years into our, into our being. And I said, Hey guys, I've always wanted to play the harp. Will you put up with me? There's nothing like learning how to play an instrument with a band of really awesome colleagues <laughs> who have direct experience in what you're trying to do from different angles and are willing yeah. to like, you sound great, you know, like the harp, as I was learning to play it, Sean would sometimes rail against the machine because her instruments are all really kind of loud and <laughs> they have a strong personality. So it's like, you know, if you mess up on the 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 soprano sham or the recorder, everybody <laughs> knows about it. With the harp, you can play almost anything and it's like it may not be in the chord, but it's not it doesn't really hurt you, you know? <laughs> so it doesn't sound bad. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's the harp player sometimes I'm like, oh, that one really didn't work. Yeah. But, uh, but I, I started learning how to play medieval harps and um, and that's been a really fun process oh, to cool. to bring into our mix and to to do as an adult. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How about you, Sean? I, so as I mentioned when we were just chatting earlier, my, mm -hmm. I grew up going to orchestra concerts. My grandfather played in the Minnesota Orchestra for decades. And so I also started on piano. Uh, and then I started when I was 10, I, my band teacher tried to convince me to play the French horn, but my deepest dream <laughs> was to play the oboe. And I, so I did. <laughs> um, nice. And I was lucky to to get started on that. And then I, I also grew up singing and took voice lessons um, okay. starting in high school. Mm. Uh, and then kind of auditioned for various degrees where I could have gotten Oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm bringing this up. It's just such a Minnesotan thing to say that like I could have gone to St. Olaf and yeah. been a triple major <laughs> in piano, oboe, and voice. But I did not do that. I oh. I went to school in a place that I I don't know. I mean, you know, it's so hard to parse out your your thought process from when you're younger, but where I could yeah. only get an oboe degree. Okay. And I but I continued to take voice lessons because I love to sing. Mm. Um and my my voice teacher at that point, actually, who did a lot of early music, told me that he really thought I should learn to play the Baroque oboe and that I should have a career as a freelance early musician. And I was just like, I don't wow. know what you're talking about at all. I have right? no, no interest in that. <laughs> so to make a long story short, he was totally right. that, And that is exactly what I did. Yeah. Uh, and then at this point, um, you know, when you're an early wind player because players at the time in the in the I, I started playing Baroque oboe first and we know mm -hmm. that those players also doubled on recorder like you'll have recorder parts and oboe parts in the same in the same score like yeah and the oboes and the recorders don't play together so it's really normal to learn recorder so yeah. I started doing that I started playing the sham and then once you've played that those enough of those instruments then it starts to kind of take off and then you just sure. have many 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 sticks in your bedroom right. um everywhere <laughs> <Yeah>. covered 
Um, but I started doing medieval music um, with Tracy when we were working on our doctorates together. And okay. I was just so inspired because to me, actually, even though I grew up going to classical concerts, yeah, I the music that I listened to for fun was I've listened to pop music a lot of the time and mm-hmm. kind of love the way I listen to music is like, I want to f- have like a visceral feeling when I yeah. listen to it. Like that's what I- I'm excited about. And actually I'm a, I'm getting better at musical analysis, like analytical listening as mm-hmm. I've taught more and mm-hmm. had to think about it. Yeah. But I'm, especially at first I was like, I don't know what they're doing. I don't care. I just want to have this <laughs> feeling. And when I yeah. heard my first medieval music that I heard in real life was the first time that in a classical context, I'd had that kind of feeling of, oh my gosh, I don't mm. understand how people are even doing this. But those are the most exciting sounds I've ever heard. <laughs> like, while work, and of course, like, I love classical music too. And had, this was my third degree. So it's not like I hated it. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. No, it just, opened, yeah, I just, yeah. Yeah, it yeah. really it really changed my life. And at that point, I actually didn't play the recorder at all. And I didn't know my way in as an instrumentalist. Okay. I was like, I just want to be around it. Yeah. Well, I mean, bass recorder or any of the low... I mean, recorder in general is a really beautiful sound if it's played by someone who knows what they're doing, right? I mean, but especially those low recorders. And, and you know, as you mentioned, it happens right away in the beginning of the soundtrack. But it happens throughout. And I just loved hearing that. Loved it. Thank you. Yeah, that yeah. I loved getting to play those. instruments are beautifully made by Tom Prescott. He's this maker up in New Hampshire who has been making beautiful instruments for decades and is now retiring to our dismay across America (laughs) and beyond. But his instruments are really designed to to play together because in the 16th century, you know, you would have a whole consort of recorders like SATTB recorders. Mm. And so actually in this multi-tracked process, it was really nice to hear how beautiful they sounded with each other. (laughs) (laughs) Because usually in our mixed consort, you know, I sometimes Ben, our our bagpipe and dulcet player, also will play recorders, but most often it's just me. Um, okay, okay. So, so that was really fun to get to get yeah. to get to experience. Tracy, you mentioned the hurdy-gurdy. So tell us about the weird-ass hurdy-gurdy. <laughs> well, you know, I'm struggling to remember. The hurdy-gurdy is, I think, on one track. Is uh, Maybe or maybe not. Maybe I don't not. Know it's not on anything. Because it's really not on anything. The thing is, you know, 
it's it's a very finicky instrument and um and it's really good for self-accompanying with a with a drone right <laughs> sure and, yep. and playing a counter melody if you're yeah. a singer um but if you have vls who can can accompany you yeah with, with essentially an unbroken sound you know the with the yeah, the hurdy-gurdy kind of allows you to be a singer and a VL player simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, because we have VL players we, who who are frankly better than I am at that job than I am on the hurdy-gurdy, <laughs> uh, we didn't, I don't think we used it. I'm, I think that's true. We, we used it on the next recording that we have coming out, but it's, okay. it's a little, it's a, it's, it's funny that kind of, it's, it's kind of a quintessential medieval instrument and it's got that drone sound that that nasal drone sound and so people project that understanding onto the tracks they hear yeah when really it's it's the vls which oh, okay it's the same thing right like the hurdy-gurdy is a wheel that yep. is just that has rosin on it that is causing a string to vibrate very uh-huh. similar to the process of having a bow that has rosin on it that's causing a string to vibrate sure. so and and they're gut strings you know so it's yeah it's that that similar sound and yep. um we just ended up not we had other things that were giving us what we needed so i i think we just didn't bring it in sean tracy i feel like we should bring up we did have a drone based instrument that we used a lot the shite holds right and that kind of gave us that low drone sound that you can hear it it's the kind of instrument that starts on the the body both bodies and that was actually those tracks are amazing that and the body was the first piece that we made as just kind of a prototype oh wow uh, in the very beginning and that was actually right after nikola had gotten the scheidholz i think that was like what its first time being recorded um was when we made that initial demo track glad you brought up the body because uh, those tracks, again, these are, I, I can't remember if it's all strings or mostly strings, um, but it's very raw playing, right? It's very like pulling the bow across mm-hmm. the strings and it gives you this like, you know, sense of foreboding, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and actually all the string sounds you hear, that's just one shite hold. Oh, wow. Um, so there's no VLs. Actually, I don't think David is involved in those those tracks. Oh, we had a, cool. an early version where we imagined the body and then there were like spooky VL mystery sounds overlaid on top of it was yeah. an option that we gave um, that was... Now I'm like, oh, we should listen back to that. that yeah. <laughs> but that sounded pretty weird. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so it's just the Scheitholt. It can create very cool, such a thick droning sound. Yeah. And then there are various drones, other drones layered on top of it. Um, yep. We recorded ourselves doing some vocal drones. And then there's also the low dulcy and the low early bassoon is making okay. some of that. Oh, and the cool. Scheitholt, it's like a it's like a triangular instrument. Nicola likes to put it on a um, an ironing, a wooden ironing board that okay. I believe you found in his partner's house that belonged to his grandmother or something but anyway it creates a, a, a nice resonator for it so you cool. hear 
you hear the the difference tone below the drone notes, which also kind of creates that deep richness. But okay. it's a flat it's a flat bridge, and so it's a bow along a flat bridge, and then you play it by by sliding up and huh. down a melody string, and oh, so that also kind of creates the 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 kind of portamento sounds. Very cool. Loved it. Oh, such a cool track. Set of tracks. The second body or a second body? The second body. Body of the second body. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The second body of the second body's second. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And also like the the kind of combat-y tracks, you know, we call it combat music in Mm -hmm. in games. And, um, you know, they're like these frenetic dances with, you know, changing meters and... um, and that those tracks were really cool, like The Mob Pursues, The Abbott, and um, Flight from the Library, I loved. So talk a little bit about those, um, that style, the dancing, and the just mixed meter situation that, that's this, happening. This was a fun, so, so this was also kind of a fun learning situation for us insofar as we, those scenes directly uh, played on top of what Sean was talking about before, that the triangle the triangle and the recorder featured in in early versions of if not both at least one of those tracks and and that was where things weren't just weren't working and also Mm. polyphony also we had a kind of a hard time creating that sense of of danger and we found that monophony um or things that started off as as monophony and then we added a baseline to Mm -hmm. essentially worked better because they had that they they have essentially mixed meter often built into them because that was just the way music was working at the time, right? Yeah. And so so with that mixed meter built in and kind of the one melody line to follow, uh, it, it created a sense of fast pacing that that seemed to read as, as like you said, as dangerous, frenetic, as yeah. opposed to when we had full-blown polyphony with with hype, hype triangle and possibly soprano <laughs> recorder. Um, the feedback we got was that it came across as as uh, almost comical, you know, kind sure. of like if you think of like silent movies where people are, you know, like running really quickly and <laughs> ah, and what was one of the things that was fun, you know, we heard this and we just heard the tracks by themselves and we thought they sound super exciting. It's a chase scene, you know, but mm-hmm. as um as part of this conference that Sean and I recently did, one of the things that I did was to to take the gameplay and then take the the final track off of it and then underscore it with various drafts that we did so you could see so we could see what Josh and the team had seen and and it was totally true that Mm. that it was just fascinating to see that the kind of fast polyphonic tracks with more regular phrasing Mm -hmm. didn't work as well as as monophonic tracks with with this irregular feeling kind of built into it
it's interesting and makes sense is that so we kind of and this is actually when we were talking about these is when we had the conversation with josh where he released us from things having to originate in the 16th century right because that's one of the features of kind of earlier music is that they didn't write we didn't have bar lines like we know them now and so so they weren't thinking about making something irregular it just there's a lot of things they just weren't regular and that was their their feature and so so that kind of built in and also with earlier medieval music a, a big part of it um i was just talking about this with my students this week where like Tereskin, who has written you know one man history of all music theory beautiful writer but says that in the kind of 14th century it's the first time where a philosophical concept led to stylistic innovation in that order because it was people saying we can break anything on any rhythmic level into groups of two or three and then composers were like great we're gonna wildly do that and so it basically develops they're hugely interested in doing what to us reads as polyrhythm where there's constant switches between are you feeling something in two and three and you'll see different lines the top line will be feeling something in two but the bottom line will be feeling something in three the contra line will be kind of either and you're all doing that at the same time but it it works out but that kind of like rhythmic complexity is built into that music of those centuries. And by the 16th century, things are more regular. There are more regular phrase lengths and kind of that intense rhythmic interplay. They're not as interested in exploring that anymore. And so, so just going back just a couple hundred years. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Led us to this music that kind of, yeah, had something different. And, and for the mob pursues the Abbot, um, one choice that we made is that, um, if you listen to it carefully, you'll hear that we we put a rhythm, a rhythmic drum pattern that doesn't change, but the rhythmic uh, inter the rhythmic pulse of the melody actually gets offset. So there's a section in the middle where you feel the strong beat in the drum and the strong beat in the melody are not the same thing, and we wanted to keep that in because it's so unsettling. <laughs> And then when it kind of comes back together, you feel kind of a relief, but also it's still pretty alarming. Um, So we were we were able to kind of use those those tools together in a way that maybe if we were doing the piece in in a concert, we would choose to have the drum always follow the melody. Okay. Because we would we'd add a beat somewhere. Yeah. 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 You'd be like, oh, this has to be a triple instead of a duple thing to to kind of balance that out because. In most concerts, we're, if this was another thing that we we found out is that we're interested always in creating va- variety and really like mm-hmm. expressing the text we're singing. But I feel like Tracy, in most of our concerts, we're not trying to depict as much danger. No, we just like <laughs> want our audience members to feel interested, excited, and safe. Yeah. You know, yeah. not yeah, necessarily yeah, yeah. like deeply unsettled on a spiritual level. Yeah, That's right, just, right. 
You're not and, solving and, murders at your concerts. Yeah. yeah. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> Tracy, when we do a murder mystery medieval concert. You should. also realize that kind of similarly by the time we get to the 16th century people are not using tonality in the same way that we are now but it's kind of closer to how we are and that people kind of that basically something that is fast and in a minor key doesn't read as ominous in a way that when we hear things in Dorian or especially Phrygian mode, mm-hmm. which was a totally normal mode of so the medieval normal. period, yeah. people I do not do not think we're using it to seem ominous then. But yeah. to us, that like lowered second mm-hmm. reads as very different and also kind of creepy, yeah. mysterious, 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 kind of otherworldly, yeah, outside yeah. the yeah. bounds of of mm-hmm. normal mm-hmm. everyday life, yeah. yeah. So also that's using those earlier, either composing our own modal melodies or or using Mm -hmm. earlier modal modal melodies also gave us a way in to kind of have that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I was and am such a Baroque nut. Like I have portraits of Jean-Philippe Rameau and Bach in my house, my house, my apartment. So, I mean, I, I'm just huge. And, you know, as far as like, polyphony and Baroque music. And I always want to hear it on, I mean, that maybe not always, but I prefer to hear it on instruments of the era. I just think it, it just feels right to me to hear it that way. And, and I'm like that with keyboard music and people who listen to this podcast know how much I love harpsichord. I love, love harpsichord. <laughs> like that's it's all I want to hear. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you know, what, what do you think really drew you to um, you know, this different type of music, because even Baroque music, even though it's tonal, it's very different than today's music, right? But, but you're even going, you know, centuries before that, in some cases. So, um, you know, what, what lit that spark for you each? I have I have both kind of like a boots on the ground answer and also a philosophical answer. Okay, yeah. So so the (laughs) You know, the kind of boots on the ground answer is uh, there, you know, there's so much good music throughout time, space, history. Like, like, yeah, humans are creating amazing sounds. Right. Yes. And um, and the what I love. So and I could talk about what I love about all of them. What I love about the medieval world and the and the early music world kind of in general like Sean said, we've kind of found ourselves mostly in this medieval world, is um, there's a real visceral kind of folk element to a lot of it, and also a real uh, elegant kind of artistically stylized element to a lot Mm -hmm. of it that feels very familiar to me as a 21st century person. And it's fun to kind of really explore the language of both those worlds, which tends because you know, we have a lot of material, but a lot of it is still 
left open to the performer. The performer, even more so in the Baroque, is really considered the realizer of of, of this music. And so, mm. so the fact that so much is left open to the performer, the fact that there's still a whole bunch we don't know, kind of is, as one of our colleagues has put it, is an invitation to creation, to creativity. And sure. that is just, it's it's a really fun place to be. So, you know, to bring a text alive, to, to find yourself in it, to find another viewpoint in it and to think, how do I bring this viewpoint? How do I, how do I honor the past or how do I put myself in the past? You know, which, mm -hmm. how am I choosing those things? So, so all those things are really fun. The sounds are really fun. You know, one of the things I love about being an early musician is it's like, there are so many interesting sounds to play with. Mm -hmm. And we kind of haven't, we kind of, it, it hasn't gotten, there's no right answer that has been grafted onto it yet. People keep trying to do it. Like, you know, we really like to know what's right or wrong, but yep. the Middle Ages has so far defied that categorization <laughs> globally. And I yes. hope it stays that way. Yeah, so yeah. that's kind of like my, but, you know, kind of philosophically, um, I started trying to become a mu musician in my, my late twenties. And, okay. and that was, um, you know, I felt really committed to it, but it's, it's not when most people start that, that career. Yeah. And one of the things that I found um really wonderful was that the early music community was was very inviting. And there's I think in there just that thing of um essentially access. Like it was it was an avenue that was people went out of their way to include me in it. And it's and the same thing with the medieval world, you know, I got into the early music world and then in the medieval world, people went out of their way to to make space for me within it. There was a space for me to be creative. Mm -hmm. And and that is a big part of why I became a medieval musician as opposed to some other kind of musician. And yeah. I, you know, I really think it just, I really think that music, making music is such a wonderful thing to do as a human, but there are so many avenues that we we block it off from people. We tell them you need to be doing it professionally for it to be legitimate. You know, you needed to start when you were a child. Just, there are so many ways that we don't, open open the gates for people to be a part of that you know mm -hmm. for all sorts of reasons which we don't have time to get into and i know that personally having having that door opened for me in a world where there were a lot of doors that were already closed is is why is why i, I get to do this awesome thing and yeah, yeah so music rocks we should help <laughs> people do it <laughs> yeah we should <laughs> sean how about you yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I growing up, I was really lucky to have parents that were really supportive in part because I had this example in my family of sure. that being a professional musician is a job you can have. Mm -hmm. And I kept doing these things. I went to school with just such talented people who do know have jobs in major orchestras they're incredible. Yeah. Um, and I'm so lucky to to know them. But I feel like I was kind of peer pressured and thinking that that's what I should be trying to do, mm. uh, which is a hilarious thing to be peer pressured into. Like, of course, you want to win an orchestra job. Like, that's what your friends are doing. <laughs> like, that's the normal thing to do. Yeah. And I and I I didn't have an example of anyone who had the kind of life that I now have. Uh and and I kept trying to be on that path and I was practicing my orchestral excerpts and it's just such a hard world. I compare it to trying to win a job in a professional orchestra is like trying to get into the NBA. 
Yeah. Like it, you can be amazing and you cannot get in because yeah. of skill and luck and timing. Mm -hmm. Um, and basically as I was kind of in that world in the middle of my master's, I started playing the Baroque oboe kind of on a whim for fun. And it was, it was just so nice to do a thing that was totally for fun it didn't matter at that point. I'm like, oh, what a beautiful feeling. But it felt like it was totally for myself and that all of my practicing could just be to explore. And also there there wasn't a right answer, which I kind of have a conflicted like relationship with because I am, I'm a really good student. And one reason why is because I'm really good at following instructions. And I honestly <laughs> think that part of what I enjoyed about being a musician as a young person is that I could follow instructions really well. Yeah. And then the results were really fun, but so sure. was the pleasure of, of just being like, yeah, I can, I can do exactly what my teacher told me to do. Like, isn't that exciting? You know, when I was yeah. 10, like, that's pretty great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it, it took me a really long time. I was in my early 30s in New York before I realized that actually something that I think a lot of my colleagues had always known, and we didn't necessarily talk about it, but actually as a professional musician, your job is to figure out what instructions you want to give to yourself and sure. then to execute them. It, you're the one who decides like you can't that's actually the job and it's kind of intimidating but also also pretty liberating to be like instead of just being like my job is to play this piece as my teacher told me to and if I can't do it then I'm really frustrated it's like my job is to figure out how I want to play this piece and then to decide if I've done it and excitingly, as a medieval musician, because we're modifying music all the time, music, we have so many records of the same song song existing in like really different versions where we're like, oh, the melodic contour is the same, but the individual notes, totally different, totally fine. So honestly, as a medieval musician, if you decide that you don't, you can't do something, then it's your job to find out a better version that you can actually play. <laughs> <laughs> And that's totally okay. Yeah. But so it was it was a first kind of a, a window open to a world where there were more options and mm -hmm. and and then it became just a place to explore this newfound creativity and this new license to creation that I gave myself actually pretty recently. I'm hmm. like, even since I know tr knew Tracy, Tracy and I have hmm. known each other and been, you know, best friends since like 2010 and i would say that in the beginning of knowing each other i was still trying really hard to follow instructions that somebody else gave me mm. and that's what i thought being a good musician was sure and yeah. now you know it's pretty great It's if you're going to wildly generalize, the earlier you go back, the less instructions you get from the composer and the yeah. more you have to bring to the table. Yeah. And so the point that I am 
at now is like, I, that's why I love doing really early music. And for us as a band, um, it was also interesting because we do a lot of 16th century music, but the 16th, the 16th century is actually pretty late for us. Okay. Even the 15th century is pretty late for us. We're doing a Dubai <laughs> program next month and we're like, whoa, what are these five voice pieces? So many written out voices. So many written out voices. Because <laughs> we are really comfortable in like the 12th and 13th centuries wow. where most of the music is maybe only one line, maybe not rhythmicized, and we turn it into like a fully worked out piece that involves six people. Nice. That's, I feel like. That's our wheelhouse. That's our, that's I mean, one of our wheelhouses. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We love it there. So, so that's, that's a big reason. And, and part of it is that, you know, it's weird being called a early music specialist because actually the deep secret is that <laughs> we get to do so many different things Yeah, because we're playing so many different instruments, so many different centuries. If you think about even that we specialize in the music from the, the 12th through the 18th centuries, like that's a lot of different things we get it's to do. It's a long time. Yeah, yeah. it's a long Whereas time. Whereas if you're a, you know, a modern orchestral player, you're mostly playing music from the 19th, you know, the end of the 18th through now, but yeah. a lot of your music is in the 19th and early 20th century. And we don't yep. call them specialists. Right. I know. <laughs> <laughs> the thing, you know, I mean, tonality just comparatively has just, as we know it, it is such a short period of time. And I try to explain that to people sometimes. It's like, listen, we've only had, you know, leading tones for a few hundred years and there were centuries and centuries of music before that time. So, um, and it didn't stick around long either. In the 20th century, they're like, ah, screw a leading tone. You know, I mean, it's like... <laughs> like they're like this common practice stuff. It's mm -hmm. been working out fine for 150 years, but I got new ideas. I got other ideas. Yeah, but it's so crazy how just like, it was just like, boop, tonality mm -hmm. as we know it. That's it. And mm -hmm. we're done. So mm -hmm. crazy. And it's just ruled our lives in weird ways. But, but yeah. <laughs> um, oh, I just, I hate to do, I have to let you go now. And I'm so bummed. Um, but Bill's got to get paid. <laughs> <laughs> we understand. Um, I mean, just such a wonderful, wonderful uh, soundtrack and experience. And, um, you know, obviously it goes without saying that you've introduced this kind of music to a lot of people who would never have heard it otherwise. And I, I just love you for that. So, Thanks. um, uh, I can't wait to hear your albums that you've got coming up and I hope that there's a Pentiment too, or something, uh, down the road that we can hear you in games again, because just what an absolute pleasure and treasure to have this out in the world now. So thank you. Thank you, Emily. Thank you. It's yeah. been so much fun to talk to you. And I hope we've made it clear that it's just the whole experience has been such a delight for us. Like it's, it's been one of the most special things we've ever been involved with. Yeah. And yeah, we feel so privileged to get to have done it. Yeah. There's more. That's awesome. If not, this was great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to Level with Emily. You can learn more about Sean Ricketts and Tracy Cowart and Alchemy Early Music Ensemble. See a playlist and support Level with Emily at patreon.com slash level. Check out the video of my chat with Sean and Tracy on the Level with Emily YouTube channel. Subscribe, get notifications so you don't miss any of our new videos. I'm Emily Reese. Sam Keenan is our producer. Say hi, Sam. Greetings, good squire. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Level with Emily and learn more about us at levelwithemily.com, made possible by Adam Selvage at Tiki Web Services. Composer Brad Gentle manages our YouTube channel. Level with Emily Reese is a production of June Media Inc. Here at Level with Emily, we're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance. It features a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. You can hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.